Thank you for tuning in. I am excited about this episode as what I was hoping for happened. And that was to begin to connect the dots and go a bit deeper into new ways of thinking and working that will benefit us both today and moving forward. It's clear that the way most of us work, the way most of us in leadership and senior management were taught is at least less than ideal, if not disjointed, and in some cases, even dysfunctional. Many organizations continue to load the wagon, hoping it all works out, use sink or swim as the primary means for training and development, and rely on just-in-time management to make the best out of most projects month after month, year after year. If we take a step back, it's not hard to figure out why frustration, overwhelm, burnout, and missed opportunity loom large especially when so many of us are continuing to push a greater number of more complex and integrated projects through inefficient and ineffective work environments that have at the same time become hugely chaotic and distractive. This plus the reassessment of priorities and the rebalancing of so many of our lives coming out of COVID are clearly helping to fuel the three great R's or not so great R's depending on our position. These being the great resignation, great reshuffling, and the great retirement wave spanning across all industries, including our own. If we're going to slow down and stop the trend and be able to attract and retain more great talent to our teams and firms and our industry overall, we're going to need to come up with some better ways to work. And this takes us to today's episode. Our guest is Patrick Sweet, president of the Engineering and Leadership Project, And prior to that, a high-achieving professional, manager, and leader who held high positions at Lockheed Martin and Bombardier. Our discussion focuses on the emerging practice of systems engineering, agile work methods, and how we can improve our overall productivity, especially now when so much more is being asked of us, both individually and organizationally. And as I mentioned at the top, This conversation ties directly into two recent podcast episodes, one related to advanced technology and data use, episode 81 with Sean Mahoney, and one introducing us into the world of agile design and thinking, episode 79 with Michael Sohoto. And these all together are designed to help us look beyond what we've come to know and continue to do in order to more critically and strategically consider new and more innovative approaches to solve our present work challenges and the changes we already see coming. So without any further delay, let's do it. Welcome to AEC Leadership Today, the podcast designed exclusively for engineering, architecture, and construction industry leaders who want to stay relevant and effective. The show takes on the most pressing issues facing the AEC industry and was created to help you and your firm grow and prosper in the 21st century. The host of AEC Leadership Today is Pete Atherton, a professional engineer and former AEC principal and owner turned AEC coach and consultant. And now, take a break from your never-ending to-do list and welcome Peter Atherton. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another great episode of AEC Leadership Today. Today, we'll be speaking with Patrick Sweet, who recently launched the Engineering and Leadership Project after a career as a people manager, team lead, and systems engineer at Lockheed Martin, among other entities. And we'll be talking about systems engineering, agile design, and how to improve our overall productivity. Welcome to the podcast, Pat. Thanks so much, Pete. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I'm happy that you're here. I'm excited for our conversation as we, well, before we get in, um, as we start here, could you share a little bit about you, your career and background, the engineering and leadership project, and, and what made you transition from being an employee to an entrepreneur at some point? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so I, I started in a pretty traditional field of engineering, studied electrical engineering uh, at undergrad and got into building and facilities design uh, with a small consulting firm here in Canada. Um, But eventually uh, followed a girl to a place where uh, my consultant did not have an office. (laughs) So that that forced a a little bit of a career change and it it ended up working out quite well. I 
got a gig with a company called Bombardier, uh, which at the time was the world's largest rail manufacturer. And we had this beautiful setup in my, in my home in Kingston, Ontario. It was North America's largest rail test track. And I was the guy who got the job to test the emergency brakes on the trains we were developing. It was the most exciting, most terrifying job you can possibly imagine is taking a train up to hundred kilometers an hour and hitting the big red button <laughs> and, and hoping everything works out. And that was my introduction to the world of systems engineering, which is a relatively new field, but it's, it's a field that really specializes in, it's the layer of engineering that has to happen on complex projects before you unleash the detailed design teams so that your team, the client, and everyone else around understands the bigger picture, the goal of the design. And that's important for things like automated driverless trains, which you could make do just about anything. It's a matter of choosing what the right things are. So I'm sure we'll get into that a little bit more later. Um, but after a few years at Bombardier, I rose to the ranks, became a product manager and eventually chief engineer uh, within that division, and then moved on eventually to Lockheed Martin, where I was also a systems engineer, but applying those same skills and same methodology into the world of shipbuilding, which again, as you might imagine, when you get into things like designing warships, uh, you've got the world's most advanced technology at your disposal. So the question becomes more about not what can we do and more about what should we do? And then can we make that work? So that's, that's what systems engineering is all about. Um, after a little while, became the head of configuration management for Lockheed Martin Canada, um, led a number of teams in what's called the Canadian Surface Combatant Program, which is the largest shipbuilding program in the world since the end of the Second World War. It's, it's, it's a crazy program, really, really cool stuff. But over the years, what I, I started to realize was that what I'm most passionate about, what I find most interesting and, and frankly, most important is in the leadership and management of engineering teams. So through my career, I ended up getting my, my MBA, uh, went and got my project management professional designation, all with this idea that I wanted to get really, really good at leading teams in one form or another. The impetus being I had seen, and, and frankly, I had been on high performance teams and I felt the, the joy and the excitement and saw the productivity, saw what those kinds of teams could achieve. And they were all led by great leaders, phenomenal leaders. And I've been on other teams too, <laughs> where things are pretty miserable, where engagement is low, where no matter how many hours you work in a given week, you just can't seem to get things going. So throughout all that time, I, I really became passionate about that side of engineering work. So starting just a few months ago in January, I uh, hung my shingle and launched what's called the Engineering and Leadership Project, which is uh, an organization that is aimed at helping engineering firms by helping their leaders lead, by helping their leaders thrive and providing them the, the skills and the tools to do that because you don't learn that in engineering school. And in many cases, you don't even learn it when you become promoted to management. It's not something that most companies are equipped to help you transition through. So I'm, I'm trying to fill that gap. Well, thank you for that, um, that introduction and background. I think that's really going to be very helpful in our conversation today, which is it's always eventually about the team, right? And how the team performs, but maybe some context for how things are changing today. So in our past conversations, I, I we've talked about a variety of subjects and one of my goals today, now whether we can do it or not, it's going to be a question, but in the context, so one of my recent podcast conversations and recent areas of research was really kind of in, in the future of design and, and where things are going really in the, in the AEC consulting space. And one of those recent podcasts focused on advanced technology and data use. And the, the thought, the feedback was that we're we're moving towards now will it happen tomorrow will it happen in 10 years you know to be determined but we're moving towards more integrated designs more complicated designs because they're moving towards digital twins and towards prefabrication and modular construction and to me i think systems engineering 
but I don't know. I mean, I have been a traditional consultant and we've had large systems, but maybe not systems engineering. And you've shared a little bit about that, but in that context of the future of design work and maybe larger, more com, not necessarily larger projects, but more complex and integrated projects. How, how do you think of systems engineering? Is that the right, the right name, the right way to think about it? And so yes or no, and then maybe how, how would you define systems engineering? and see it practiced. Well, maybe we'll, we'll start with that is defining systems engineering to, to contextualize the answer. Systems engineering is that there are three P's for systems engineering. It's a perspective, it's a process, and it's a profession. So it's a, a way of thinking about complex projects. It's a way of approaching it. And it's a thing that, that real engineers do. Not many of us, <laughs> frankly, it's, it's an emerging field. Um, if you look at uh, INCOSI, the International Council of Systems Engineering, its membership is about 20 years behind what Project Management International's membership looks like on a similar trajectory. But we, we've got a long ways to go in terms of establishing ourselves as uh, a dominant force in the world of engineering. Okay, and before and, we go, can you, can you yeah. those three Ps again, could you say those three Ps one more time? Yeah, absolutely. So a perspective, a process, and a profession. Okay. So systems engineering can apply to, to all of those and, and a good systems engineer doesn't just apply a certain set of rules or heuristics or methodologies. They're really thinking about projects and complex systems in a particular way. And a lot of people ask, well, what's a system? And in a sense, anything can be treated like a system. And, and the, the real important part here is that most of us when we go through engineering school, we think of um, designs in terms of the parts we're going to use. A systems engineer will think about the parts for sure, but also the behavior of the cohesive whole of those parts. Now, the way I used to explain my job at Bombardier to my friends was it's my job to make sure that when we buy a bunch of train parts, that it actually ends up becoming a train and not just those parts. And it's amazing the amount of work that has to go in to integrate and coordinate the detailed stuff that dozens of other companies are doing. Because again, they could do anything. And it's really, really important for you to set the boundaries, set the interfaces, set the requirements with each and every supplier such that when they, when they do exactly what you asked, when you get that stuff back, that it actually comes together and it works together. And this is where I think there is opportunity in the world of civil engineering, because, and, and you and I have talked about this, civil engineering is moving more and more, and, and construction is moving more and more toward uh, knockdown kits and modular builds. So builders are looking more and more like systems integrators. So just like Bombardier doesn't really make trains, they buy train parts and they buy the right train parts and make sure they come together. Lockheed Martin does the same thing with ships. Boeing does the same thing with planes. Those companies are integrating what suppliers do. And I think, and, and I suppose this is where the conversation is going to go. I can see how uh, construction could move toward that. And then how, how do you think of that? If construction's moving towards that, how do you think that, I mean, and a lot of, say, buildings, right? I mean, one of the conversations where buildings are turning into vertical assembly lines, sites, assembly sites, and a lot of coordination, even AI on sites to coordinate the movement of materials, especially on large projects. And so there, if, if, if you think of a building as the, the construction of a building as a vertical assembly line, how... How do you think, and it's be, and, and let's say it is driven by owners and it's going to be driven by the contractors because at the end of the day, they drive a lot of the, the obviously the construction value, you know, cost of the projects, right? If they do it efficiently and, and swiftly, but uh, in, in, in a way that is um, efficient. The designers have a role, obviously, and then some of the components, the life cycle costs as far as energy and all that. How do you see if, if, if we're moving towards that, how do you think the design professional needs to adapt if we're moving into a, into overall a construction as an integration that's happening? Well, 
the way I like to think about it, th there was an interesting study that, that, that was done that shows that for, for complex projects, by the time you've done the conceptual design, and what you call conceptual design is different from, from industry to industry, but by the time you've done the back of the envelope type work, you've committed up to 70% of the costs of the project. Now that, that's phenomenal. And by the time you've refined that into even a preliminary design, you've committed up to 85% of the costs of the project before anyone's broken ground, before anyone's cut a purchase order. So where I see opportunity is in those early stages to make sure that when an owner is looking to build something that everyone understands the form, fit and function that they're after and that everyone understands what you're about to do and what you're about to embark on. Because by the time you start signing purchase orders for long lead items, by the time you start inking deals with, with subcontractors and trades, the more and more and more you commit, the harder and harder and harder it is to change. And that's what systems engineering is all about. It's very, very heavy in that front end of the project is understanding the needs of the client and translating that into requirements that can then be farmed out to the wider world. And as building systems get more complex and more integrated, and you, you know, you've got, you've got smart systems, you've got AI, you've got big data, all of this stuff is starting to come together in buildings, just like it is other complex projects. The moment you realize, oops, I asked contractor A to do this. I should have asked him to do that. That system interfaces with eight other teams. Now you've got a problem. And now you don't even understand fully without testing what the implications of your oops is. And it's only going to get harder to, uh, to deal with problems like that as systems get more complex. So it, it's really all about putting a ton of thought in up front before, before anyone grabs a shovel to move forward on a, on a build. And, you know, you mentioned, well, okay. A lot of the upfront effort, is this going to now translate into or transition into how that work is done? Is it that upfront effort, the conceptual systems design, is that best done in an agile environment? I mean, how, what is the transition? Maybe we make sure we cover the systems engineering. I, I get that from an integrated perspective. And if you're a Lockheed Martin, or if you're a Boeing and you're, you're actually assembling, right? I can see the purchase of materials, but maybe from a systems design, if I'm an architect and I'm designing a hospital and I've got a lot of, but, but it's all on paper first, right? I'm designing this and I have MEPs that are doing certain things. Um, how do I, it, think about that design from a systems perspective and, and the same thing of, of a large transportation projects. So I've got roads and intersections and a big bridge and all that stuff. But if I'm like the, the, either the architect on a building project or the civil engineer manager of record on a, a big road infrastructure project, how, do, how would that be different from say a Lockheed Martin or a Boeing in terms of systems engineering? I, I, fundamentally, I don't think it necessarily has to, right? You know, if you think of, well, I mean, I mean, shipbuilding is kind of an interesting case because, because a ship is just a, a floating sideways building, isn't it? It has safety critical systems. It has a power plant. It has sophisticated equipment, just, just like a hospital. So if you think about the importance, and, and this is an interesting, an interesting question. My, my wife is a physician and she's heavily involved in healthcare quality and patient safety. So she looks at things like how do patients flow through a hospital? Why are we asking 80 year olds who are coming in to get their knees done to walk back and forth across a hospital three times for routine procedures, right? So systems engineers would look at something like a hospital and bring in human factors analysts and help them apply requirements to the project that might not otherwise be recognized. Um, electromagnetic interference experts might come in and say, you really shouldn't put that kind of equipment next to that kind of equipment because you're going to increase your failure rates and decrease your service, your, your, your level of care. So it's a great way to bring in what, what we call the abilities, the reliability, the maintainability, and all the rest, um, and really look at the function of a hospital. A hospital is not just a bunch of rooms. 
anyone can design a bunch of rooms. It's you're, you're in a lot of ways designing a, a production facility. You're producing healthier patients and it's phenomenally complex and there's a ton you've got to consider. And, and that that's exactly where a systems engineer might, might get involved is to coordinate and oversee what all it's going to take to create a quality hospital. And then at the back end to verify that everyone did what they said they were going to do. And then to validate that the hospital at the end performs at the level that the owner hoped it would. And okay, I get that. Thank you for that. What is the best environment or the best methods for systems engineering for that? It, and, and I 100% agree, a ship in a vertical building, they're, they're more common than we would think. And um, same thing with complex roadway projects and other things. Sure. Yeah. If, if we adopt in the languages, this emerging practice of systems engineering, and some of those, what, what, it, what is that the method or the environment that allows that to happen to its maximum potential? Hmm. I think, um, I think where you're going to find, uh, the, the greatest value from, from using systems engineers and, and systems engineering is, is in projects that are uh, complex or unique as in you, you've not, you've not done this kind of thing before. Um, and where there's an, an increased level of technical risk and increased complexity in terms of stakeholders, be that your supply chain, uh, be that, um, other like, uh, public stakeholder groups or government entities, or th there's a really good example of a, an international crossing in Europe that, that spanned two different electrical systems, which was important because there, there were rail lines crossing, um, driving on different sides of the road, different road standards. And they brought in systems engineers to coordinate. How do we, how do we navigate this and have it work and have it work on time? Um, so yeah, that those, those are the environments where, where you're going to get the most bang for your buck, so to speak. Okay. And do you see any similar environments where in, in the AEC space that you look at it as someone who came from, or, you know, lived in the world of systems engineering. If you talk to traditional designers in the AEC space, where your first reaction is, well, that would be better off system, you know, in, in a systems design suite or thinking systems design, um, anything that you run across that it's just like, wow, either you're doing it and not calling it, or you would benefit from a systems engineering approach. Yeah, that, that's a good question. I think, um, I think a lot of architects would appreciate the, the mindset, right? Because they're, they're thinking of, about the, the, the big picture. I think a lot of, of it and, and data guys, software guys in particular get it. So if you're a, if you're a P, PLC programmer, for example, uh, or an HVAC guy, you might, you might start to understand how making a change over here can affect the building as a whole. Um, but, but it is, it is pretty new, even in the world of, for example, rail, what was, uh, systems engineering is not the traditional way systems engineering comes from, uh, the aerospace and defense industries, basically, uh, the U S military after the second world war realized that their equipment was getting far too complex for any one discipline to really lead the way. It was just too much. There was too much going on. So, so that's really where the, the, um, the discipline was born, but more and more in industries where, um, complexity is an issue, uh, criticality, human factors and safety, um, are, are super important. You're seeing more and more of it. So you're thinking about things like healthcare for example, is, is this huge emerging field for systems engineering. But the, the more you introduce it to new industries, the more people look at it and think, huh, I, I bet we could benefit from that because it's, it's, it's a way of thinking more than anything else. Um, and, and yeah, the, the world, the world is not getting simpler. <laughs> we can, we can say that for sure. Right. Well, another way of thinking that we've talked about, and I want to just kind of see if there's an integration here, um, the world of agile, 
as a, you know, agile methods, work methods, uh, at a podcast episode, just introducing us to this idea. And, and that is a different way of thinking. It's a, you know, and it's been around in manufacturing for a long time, comes from lean. Could you share a little bit of your perspective on, on agile, where it comes from and how applicable do you think that is to systems engineering and maybe the AEC space? Yeah, for sure. So agile and, and many folks have heard agile, maybe don't, uh, even if they appreciate the, the the gist of it, what you're trying to get at, maybe don't appreciate um, uh, the, the the full story and background. So, agile is a is more than anything a philosophy uh, around project management, and it was born it was born uh, in the software world, where uh, there was this there was this enormous uh, project at the, at the Pentagon, a software project that that for. <laughs> For whatever reason, no one could figure out how to get this thing across the line. And someone had the bright idea of saying, actually, I don't want more money and I don't want more people. I want, I want most people out of the room now. I want a core team. I want you to leave us alone. And I promise you we'll hammer it out. And they got it to work. So, so it's like, what, what did you do? So Agile really emphasizes um, continuous planning. So what, what they recognized is that no one on earth has ever seen a Gantt chart that was right. It doesn't happen. You can't plan. Heck, it's hard enough to plan going out to the movies with your friends without changing the plan three times between now and tomorrow night. How do you expect then to coordinate hundreds of millions of dollars worth of work, thousands of people in some cases to, to, to erect a building? It, 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 it just doesn't make sense. So, yeah, it's important to plan, but it's important to also recognize and facilitate changes to that plan when reality punches you in the face, because it will. A supplier will be late or go out of business. Um, a, a partner maybe falls through. Your financing could, could, could crash or who, who knows? Regulations can change. So what Agile does is, is it accepts the fact that you can't control anywhere as close to the number of factors you wish you could. So instead, set up a process to absorb and respond to those changes. Um, it also assumes that the customer doesn't necessarily know quite what they want. Or even if they do, they can't necessarily communicate all that well what they want. So this agile philosophy emerged to, to deal with all that. Now, you, people have probably heard of uh, a, a number of, of agile um, approaches. So if agile is the philosophy, there are approaches to implementing agile in the real world. Most people uh, will have heard of Scrum or extreme programming. There, there's a number of different ways of adopting that, that philosophy. Um, what I'm most familiar with is Scrum, and, and that's, that's one of the most popular approaches. And in Scrum, the, what you do is you organize your work into chunks called sprints. Most people do somewhere between one to four week sprints. And what you do is you sit with your team. It's a dedicated team whose only job is to work on this work. It's very important. And you say, okay, what, what are we going to do over the next two weeks? And everyone commits to what they're going to do. And Everyone raises their hand to let you know if there are any roadblocks or issues or anything. And if everything's good, you, you go forward. But then you don't just wait two weeks or three weeks or whatever the case may be. You touch base with your team and on, on a regular basis. And most teams do what's called a daily stand-up. And in the daily stand, it's a stand-up because someone figured out that if you force the team to physically stand up, they'll get through the meeting quickly, which is what you want. So it's, it's 15 minutes and everyone reports on what they did since you last met, what you're planning on doing over the next day. And if you have any problems, and this allows for real time coordination between members and it, it allows for near real time escalation of issues. So the project manager doesn't need to stay glued to the inbox. They know they're going to touch base with their team at no more than 24 hours from now. And they know that they're going to hear about issues and more importantly, the team members know what one another is working on or trying to work on. 
And if someone is stuck, it's easy to react and respond to facilitate people getting the job done. At the end of the sprint, everyone gets together. They review the previous two weeks. You look at lessons learned. You know, how could we be better? How could we be faster? How could we produce higher quality? And you choose a few things and you use that in the planning for the next two weeks. So this whole idea is that it, it, it comes across to some people as not planning compared to, you know, this, this world where you've got a Gantt chart with 5,000 lines and you know, down to the half hour when the truck load of pipes is going to show up to site, or you think you do because it's on the Gantt chart, agile looks like you're, you're not even bothering. And it's not true. It's, it's, you're actually probably spending more time planning, but you're spending more time planning with more information about the, the circumstances in the world around you. And there's a real focus in Agile. I, I should have mentioned this on top. There's a real focus on Agile that at the end of your sprint, you've got something to show for it. The whole idea is that you get something done, like really done, something that you could show a client. And no, it won't be perfect. Maybe it's a prototype. Maybe it's a, a, a small portion of a larger design, but you want to be able to, at the end of each sprint, show your client, here's what I did for you. Here's why. What do you think? And if you're doing that every two weeks, you're getting real feedback. You're getting real guidance. It's not two years later, you show up for a design review and the client says, well, I, I hate this. This is terrible. <laughs> Even if you've complied with every single requirement and every request and every regulation, the client can still hate it. So you want to know that sooner than later. And I, Agile accounts for that. Right. And, and you would, in order to have this, the, the sprint, I mean, you would plan, you would have this deliverable in mind. How do you come up with a deliverable? Is it the conceptual design the, the, or the process flow diagram or the, the wire diagram for system X? I mean, do you just pick a system like that and say, let's run this to ground conceptually? I mean, could you speak to how you decide on what the sprint topic is? Yeah, for sure. So, so at, at the very beginning of a project, you would get together with the team to make sense of, okay, what, what are we here to make or do or transform? What, what's the ultimate deliverable? And what you would do is you would brainstorm every last single thing you think you need to do in order to get to done. And normally what you would do is you would say, okay, there, there's either a, a certain logic to the things you can do, um, or there's a certain value to the things you can do. And you would do the highest value stuff soonest or, or the stuff that ultimately is, is blocking subsequent work, right? The, you, you do account for those dependencies. And then each sprint, your idea is that you pull work into the sprint from this backlog that you've already agreed is what we're going to need to do. Um, of course, changes to that backlog of work are inevitable. You realize that, you know, it risks materialize or you realize maybe you, you missed something, but if you're always doing the best work that you can do, the most important work or the work that's going to unlock other work down the road, then no matter what happens, if you run out of money, you run out of time, for example, you've already, you've automatically done the best you could possibly do within that constraint. So that's another way that Agile gets used is a client might say, I've got, I've got a million bucks. That's all I've got. Spend it, get me the best you can. Normally that's really hard to do because normally we're so focused on the, the end product. So um, in the world of software, for example, this is really popular because software, you could program any number of features. So you want to make sure you're getting the best, but the same thing can happen in complex systems. You can design a building or a ship or a train for future expansion. You can accommodate for that. So you can say, well, we'll get the most we possibly can with this bucket of money or this amount of time. And we will make sure that when the next round of funding comes through, you've got space in that utility room, for example, to install new equipment or upgrade or whatever the case may be. Um, agile is a really good way to approach, uh, that kind of work. Who, when you think about that, who, who needs to be in the room or who should be in the room? I mean, you mentioned the smallest number of people, are they the senior people or the, the decision makers? I guess question one, and then how do you account for people who are just learning? like new engineers, new architects who might have a role, but they're not the decision makers yet. So who's the makeup of the players? 
So one of the things that um, Agile values, I guess I would say, is is openness and inclusion. And there are a couple different ways that they would um, that that would manifest itself in Scrum. Um, I already mentioned the importance of dedicated teams. So, so one of the things that really gets in the way of all project teams is distraction. And this is particularly problematic in, in matrix organizations where everyone has at least two managers, probably three or four. In, in order to do agile in kind of a purist way, the project manager gets the team and that's it. And that team is dedicated to that project until it's done. So what you can do is you can bring the entirety of the project team, which normally you would keep to seven to 11. You don't want, you don't want much more than that. Um, so that's a function of the organization chunking the work in appropriate ways that, that a single team can get that done. Um, but you want everyone in the room, the whole project team. So there's the team, um, which in this case would include the architect, the uh, electrical, mechanical, uh, all the all the regular disciplines, um, drafters, whoever needs to be involved in creating that end product needs to be in the room. But then there's also uh, the what you would call the the scrum master, who's the person who's actually walking people through the process, making sure that people are answering the right questions during their daily standups, who are facilitating the biweekly planning. Um, and then there's another role, which we call the, the product manager. And that's the person whose number one job is to prioritize the backlog. They're the one who normally sits at a higher level in the org chart, who has more of an executive functioning role, where they're the ones who are probably closer to the client, closer to understanding the strategic impetus behind the project, who are making sure that the team is always tackling the most important stuff each sprint. Now, I mentioned this, this openness and transparency. Um, we already talked about the client being in the room at the end of each sprint to take a look at, at what you've done. Best practice would be to let anyone show up to a show and tell at the end of the sprint. And anyone who has an idea or a lesson learned or sees a risk is absolutely welcome to, to show up and provide those, uh, that feedback. Now, it doesn't mean you have to listen to everyone, but uh, there's a, uh, one of my mentors a long time ago said, uh, bad news is nothing like fine wine and never, ever, ever gets better with age. So if someone has something that they know your project is, is doomed, you want to hear it sooner than later. Um, so having, having these open uh, uh, show and tells is phenomenally valuable for that and allows for cross-pollination in, in larger teams, especially if your team is dedicated to that one project to understand what other people are doing and to integrate that is super, super valuable. So just kind of translating industry speak. So the show and tells could be technical advisory teams coming in to see where you're at and then offering opinions or reviewing something and then coming in yep. and having a discussion. And the scrum master could be the project manager and the product manager could be the principal in charge. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, I think that's a good way to think about that. Yeah. For, for my trend. And, and you mentioned in the room, I mean, and I mentioned in the room, is it physically in the room? Is it virtually in a, in a space for certain periods of time? I mean, how do you see it in action? And we're in a post COVID world. How do you physically, how would you define in the room? So I, I don't think there's a hard and fast rule there. Um, I've done, I've done both in terms of, uh, I once upon a time ran an R and D team at Bombardier where we introduced agile and scrum specifically, and we commandeered a little conference room and there were sticky notes all over the walls. There were whiteboards filled with ideas and, and the daily standups, we were physically in that room, looking one another in the eye and, and it was beautiful. It was wonderful. And it really gave people a sense that they understood where things stood in our project. You could see it. And when you got something done, you physically moved that sticky note to the done pile. Or if you didn't do what you said you were going to do, you had to walk to the board and move that sticky note to, I guess I'll try it again today. So, so there was a, a, a real sense that, that the, the, the work had to happen. Um, now, of course, many of us 
are probably in store for, for at least for engineering and design work in store for an awful lot of remote work, distributed teams, international teams, or being physically in the same room is not, is not practical. It's not possible. Luckily, there's a ton of tools out there that facilitate that in the room feel and visualizing work and the tools like Asana and ClickUp and Jira and you name it. There, there's, there's a ton of them out there which do a great job of helping people visualize the work and collaborate on it in real time. Uh, so I, I, I don't think there's a one size fits all, um, but I think the reality is that the, the mechanics behind how you do it are less important than the, the methodology and the philosophy behind it. Mm -hmm. And I, I do, I, I mean, I, I'm a, a number of organizations or either formally or informally in type, some type of a matrix from a production perspective and people are working on multiple projects for multiple people. And so I do want to get talking about how to maximize productivity and minimize distractions so we can fo fo uh, focus on our projects. But before we leave the, the systems engineering thinking and the philosophy of agile, are they connected? Is there a connection there? Am I making a connection that doesn't exist? I mean, how would they work together or, or should they? Yeah, they, they can absolutely work together. And, and I've, I've had the, the, the great pleasure of working on large systems engineering projects where agile was the project management methodology. So you're, you're applying a systems engineering and engineering mindset and executing that work in an agile manner. And this is, you know, the, the software guys have had this figured out for ages and it's just now kind of emerging in in other disciplines and a lot of systems engineers come from software backgrounds so it that 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 translation makes a lot of sense to them um so it's not necessarily uh true that if you're doing a systems engineering project you should use agile and particularly in large projects where there are a lot of people to coordinate there is certain value in the big Gantt chart so that everyone kind of has a sense for the basic rhythm of the program as a whole. But once you drill down into the day-to-day -day work, agile can be incredibly powerful. Yeah. Okay. And, and, and I, I mean, part of the, part of the idea behind this podcast is to increase awareness to maybe, you know, advance some of the understanding with some of the things that might be coming, but really might be coming, but are actually here now. We're just too busy and consumed to know that they're here and, and they're sort of emerging and some people have it and are doing really well and some people don't and are overwhelmed and you know, sort of struggling. Do you see, have you seen um, formal systems engineering or agile design methods in AEC? Have you come across that formally being used and called it? Uh, no, I can't say I have. I can't say I have. But, you know, it was a long time ago that I participated in that world, right? I was a, I was a brand new engineer when I was in uh, facilities construction and design. Um, but at that time, Agile was, was still very much a, a software thing. And there's no reason to, to fundamentally believe that a project in any one industry has to be different than any other. We are all faced with ambiguity, complexity, high time pressures, constant change. That's, that's the world we exist in as engineers. And, and frankly, most knowledge workers are faced with this kind of thing. And one of the things that um, I've learned is by, by seeing Agile rolled out into new and interesting environments like systems engineering. Um, and and I, I should, I should say that the projects that I've been involved, I've been involved in, in two or three different projects where it was the first time that the organization had tried agile and, and you can make it work. Yeah. You have to, you have to adjust and it's not, it's not a silver bullet. It's not, you know, pull the agile tool off the shelf and, and magically, you'll get everything done on time and on budget. That's not, you still need smart people working hard and good project management and all the rest. 
Um, but I have every reason to believe that, especially when it comes to design work, where there's so much being done either on paper or in 3D, where it's easy to share, it's easy to pivot, that, that agile could be useful. And, and the same thing goes for systems engineering. Um, I think, I think there's, uh, there's really there's interesting opportunities there. Mm -hmm. And all of it requires, just like anything new that indifferent we're going to do, requires a leadership mindset shift. I mean, maybe that's major, maybe that's minor, but whatever the case, leadership has to buy in. And, and we are problem solvers. We are knowledge workers. Um, and face it, our best ideas and our, the best innovation is not coming from things we've already done. It's coming from an adjacent industry. It's coming from a different industry, that, which is also solving problems, but they're just doing it in a different way. So it all works together in that sense. And so in that context, working with on projects where I'm working on this and four others right now and uh, understanding there's different demands at different times and different styles. And there is that sort of complexity and the distraction in my day to day, but yet I want to maximize productivity as a project manager. I want to maximize productivity on my projects execution. And as an individual, I might have five bosses this week because I'm working on five. I, I want to maximize my productivity. And I know this dives into what, what you're doing now with the engineering and leadership project, but could you speak about productivity and, and what that looks like and, and how that works in, in these um, design arenas? Yeah, for sure. Um, so it, productivity is something that when I speak with leaders in engineering, no one has ever told me there are enough hours in a day. No one has ever told me that uh, they're coasting. No one has ever told me that they've got just the right amount of work. <laughs> it's, it, it doesn't happen. We're, we're all overwhelmed. We're all busy. We're all tired. And, and frankly, uh, through, the, through the pandemic, one of the major issues that I think has really been pushed to the surface is, is burnout in our world. It's, it's a major problem. So one of the things that I've been working hard on is uh, productivity, both personally, but, but helping other leaders sort out being more productive as well, because time is constrained. Your energy is constrained. It doesn't matter how many Wheaties you eat. You, you've only got so much to give in the run of a, in the run of a week. So the question is more about how do you best use that and how do you ensure balance between the various work obligations you have and the obligations that you have outside of work. So one of the things that I teach <clears throat> is that productivity is ultimately the combination of three factors, effectiveness, efficiency, and systems. There's that, that systems word coming up again. Most people think about the efficiency bit, which is doing more with less, squeezing out more emails per hour. And that, that's important, but it's nowhere near as important as effectiveness which is doing the right things in the first place. There, there's a great quote from Peter Drucker, who's uh, 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 the father of modern management thinking. And he said, there is, no so, there is nothing so useless as doing efficiently that which should not be done in the first place. And it's a brilliant quote. So the, the question then becomes, okay, well, what, what should I do? And what I teach is that being effective is doing work that aligns with your goals. You can do all sorts of work and you can feel busy and you can feel like you're getting things done, but unless the work you are doing helps you achieve your goals, you're, you're spinning your tires. And the, the, the big problem there, Pete, is that most people don't have goals. Most people don't have say, a really firm sense of, it is of the, what winning the game of work looks like. Right, right. I was going to say goals and the critical and strategic thinking applied to those goals to figure out what yeah. I should be working on and when and who, who else I need to involve that yep. that is yep. it, and is it we've never been taught it we don't realize it's priority or I'm just so busy I'm just grinding through and all of a sudden a month goes by and I'm still grinding and a year and a decade goes by and I'm just still grinding and I don't critically or strategically think. No, that's right. And, and you've gotten work done. And, and frankly, you've probably done a lot of good work. And maybe you even did it really efficiently, but what have you accomplished ultimately? So th this is, this is the number one thing that, that when I 
help people with this kind of thing and say, what, what are your goals? What, what are your organization's goals? And if you don't have a sense for your organization's mission and vision and how that translates into tactical goals, and you don't have a sense for your own personal vision or why, why it is that you get up in the morning, you can't possibly have goals that, that, that motivate and excite you and push you forward. You're, you're going to be stuck on this hamster wheel forever. The third element is this systems piece, and, and, and you can tell I like the word systems, but it really encapsulates a number of things. It's the, the, the processes and the habits that you use to sustain effectiveness and efficiency over the long run. And I think about, um, I'm a big soccer fan, and one of the great criticisms of attackers in soccer is, is when they're, they're streaky. They go on these, you know, six, seven game runs where they get a goal every game and then they, they hardly matter for the rest of the season. And at the top of their game, they are phenomenal. They are world-class. They're exciting to watch. But if you can only do that every so often, are you really that good? You can't be relied upon. When you're, when you're hot, you're hot. When you're not, it's like you might as well not be there. So I, I see the same thing in our world too is if you get this burst of motivation or a really good night's sleep, yeah, maybe you can knock it out of the park for, for a day or a week or even a month. But if you don't have strong habits and strong processes in place, you can't sustain it. You can't improve it over time. So that's a, a, in my mind, anyway, a necessary component of really truly being productive and absorbing all of the stuff that's coming your way in the run of a day in a week. So, you know, things like saying no, learning to not take on work requires knowing what your goals are, requires having a, a, at least a mental model in place for how you're going to absorb incoming uh, work requests. And if you don't, if you don't have this stuff, you're, you're hooped. It, uh, it, it leads to a world of hurt, and a world of hurt that we're all familiar with, frankly. Right. And if we're thinking in terms of the, the, uh, the types of system engineering we started the conversation with and, and maybe the, the, the agile methods with that, how, I mean, we, we, we're going to need that time to concentrate, right? So we have to understand the goal of these projects and the fact that we need to be present. How, how would you think, I mean, other than the awareness, right, we're, we're talking about it and kind of thinking about the, these dots that we can connect with, with goals in our time and prioritizing and that type of thing. How do you think moving forward in order to maximize productivity in these different environments and maybe these different ways to, to think and the philosophies behind design, how do you think training and development needs to change or conversations between supervisors and practitioners? Yeah, that's a good question. It, and I think there, there are two things that jump out to me in terms of, of training and development. One is that training and development are, are not you can't think of them as a cost. You have to think of them as an investment. And uh, the, uh, once upon a time, a good friend of mine told me a, a short parable. It was a conversation between uh, the CEO and the CFO of a company. And the CFO says to the CEO, well, what, what happens if we train all these people and they leave? Like, what then? And the CEO looks at him and says, what if we don't and they stay? <laughs> it's It's super important to invest in your people. And um, there's really interesting work I, I know you've been involved in, Pete, that shows one of the most important things that engineers are looking for in terms of, of uh, career satisfaction and one of the most important um, employee um, uh, retainment tools is, is, is investing in your people, providing a clear career path helping them grow. It's more important than money. It's more important than recognition. It's more important than benefits. It, it is just shocking when, when I learned this, but it's true. Um, the other thing that I would say in terms of learning and development is it's important to help teams understand how to operate. There's the doing of the work. There's the, the, the technical nitty gritty. There's the standards and regulations. Yeah, people need to know that for sure. But focusing time on how teams operate and whether that's agile or not and whether that's systems thinking or not or whether it's it's more traditional waterfall project management that is is less the less the point but what i was saying is it, it it's important to have some sort of an operating system and 
your people need to be trained in it. And in order to be trained in it, the organization actually has to have it, which again gets back to this idea that it's critical to have some sort of, of um, time to think about how you're going to approach your work. Uh, David Marquet, I had a wonderful conversation with David Marquet recently about his new book, Leadership is Language. And he talked about the importance of, of blue work and red work. Red work is the, the, the everyday grinding. It's the doing of the work. But there's also but there's also blue work, which is all about the, the, the thinking about the work. And thinking has to be in scope. <laughs> there has to be room to think on, on a given project. Right. Well, it's interesting. I mean, kind of re-engineering or reverse engineering that. I mean, just the, the idea working with several firms now with how do we work? For that, that very reason that there's the production, there's the critical thinking, there's the margin time. However, we, there's going to be a way that we want to define how to work, which is going to then back into, well, this is our sort of our culture framework, which is backing into the behaviors that we want to see at different levels within the organization, which eventually will ultimately ties to our values. What are we valuing? And somewhere along the way is the work methods as it relates to behaviors, but it's really critically thinking about that. And, and so it's it, the, another way to think about it is this is our operating system, but you know, it's also, it, it's our cultural framework and our, our accepted behaviors that ties to the values of our organization. And really what makes us different is as is, is much, not what we do, but how we do it because what we do can be mimicked. In fact, there's always competitors to what we do, but how we do it is truly the secret sauce. I mean, that's where the culture can really separate us. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. No, no question. It's, it's incredibly important. And, and often, often it, 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 it can at least begin organically, but then to replicate it and then to hire for it and then to uh, reward and recognize that 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 takes real thought and that's super important someone someone needs to take the time to do that and and really um, provide that feedback loop particularly for new hires and, and junior staff this is this is critical and that ties into some of the organizational development aspects of this well I want to be respectful of your time we've covered a lot of ground and I I can't wait to re-listen to this probably multiple times and take a bunch of notes because we have covered a lot as it relates to systems engineering and, and agile design and, and even just some of the productivity that in and of itself is probably a pretty um, comprehensive set of things that we spoke about in the last 15 minutes. But any as it relates to systems design or agile or productivity, anything else you'd like to share or add that you feel you know leaders and 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 senior principals of of AEC firms should know or or be made aware of. Yeah, the the one thing that comes to mind it it's a line from uh, from Jim Collins, who's a, one of my favorite business authors, and he advises people to to shoot bullets then cannonballs. The thinking being don't don't listen to this conversation and say, well, we've got to go agile or we've got to hire systems engineers or we've got to do anything. Not necessarily. And even if, even if it is a good idea in your context, start small, run little experiments and allow yourself to, to figure it out. And, and do bear in mind that what, what we're talking about here may not apply in your case. It's not, it's very important not to uh, hear about a new project management methodology or a new tool or a new process or anything and think, well, this is what we've got to do. Maybe. And it's worth experimenting with, but, but allow yourself the time and space to experiment and iterate and learn. And if you can do that, whether it's with agile or systems or anything else, you will improve. You will find things that work even better and set you apart from your com competition. And that in and of itself is super healthy for, for any organization. Well, very well said, and thank you for that. How, how can listeners get in touch um, to learn more, to get in touch with you, learn more about what you're doing and the Engineering Leadership Project? Yeah, you bet. Uh, the best spot for people to go is to the website. Uh, that's engineeringandleadership.com. And there you can read our articles, listen to the podcast. You can reach out to me. All of my social media contact information is there. I'm particularly active on LinkedIn, and I'd love to connect with people there. Well, thank you. Um, and I will make sure all of those links are in the show notes as well. Well, Pat, thank you very much for your time and your insight and really helping us sort of advance our AEC industry with, you know, by looking into some of the, 
the, the, the methods that you've used in your career and are now leveraging, you know, within that space and within AEC. So really, I really appreciate your time and your um, willingness to share with us. Yeah, don't mention it, Pete. This is a lot of fun. Thank you. All right, take care. Well, that's a wrap. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to and rate this podcast on iTunes or whatever platform you listen to the show from. There are links on my website and in the show notes to do so. And please also share this podcast with your friends and colleagues. It really helps to continue to get us established, and I truly appreciate that. And it also helps to get the word out to others so that together we can collectively grow and positively impact the lives of others, both inside and beyond our organizations. Thanks for joining us on today's episode of AEC Leadership Today. If you want to stay relevant and effective and take your growth and prosperity to new levels, it's time to take action. To learn more about how Pete can help take you and your firm to the next level, visit www.actionsprove.com. That's www.actionsprove.com. See you next time on the AEC Leadership Today podcast.